This morning's reading is going to be Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Then do not swear for your head, because you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Uh, A member of the English royal family, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who is like seventh in line to be king or something, which means he's never going to be king of England, but whatever. Um, He told this story at some event a few years ago. Don't know if it's true, but hey, the seventh in line to be king of England wouldn't lie to us. Here's what he said. When computers were first being used in the insurance world, um, there was an actuarial firm that was doing some research on accidents, in-home accidents. And part of their research told them that 90% of all accidents on staircases involved either the top or the bottom stair, which makes sense, right? And as part of their process, all of the findings from the research got put into this computer that was going to help them find solutions for some of these home accident problems. And for that particular problem, here was the computer's suggestion. Remove the top and bottom steps on your staircase, which of course you can't stumble over it if it's not there. Obviously, that's taking an obvious problem and and putting just a bad solution on an obvious problem. In that passage Doug just read, I think we have the same sort of scenario. Because Jesus today is going to talk to us um, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount about word problems. And I don't mean those things you hated in math class. I mean problems with our word and problems with our words. Problems keeping our word. Problems with our words being true and honest. And really, anytime we have these kind of word problems, usually it boils down to applying a bad solution to an obvious problem in front of us. For example, say you find yourself in a conflict with someone and you sort of want to win that argument. That becomes your problem. How do I win this argument? So what do you do? Well, I minimize my fault or faults, maybe not quite truthfully, and I maximize the other person's fault or faults, maybe not quite truthfully, and I apply a bad solution to my obvious problem. Or maybe you've messed up, you've done something you shouldn't have done, and you don't want to face whatever consequences may come when people find out, so what do you do? You're maybe less than truthful. Or maybe you have a word problem like this. I don't want to disappoint this person I'm talking to. I don't want to have conflict with this person I'm talking to. So maybe it becomes easier to tell them more of what they would want to hear, even if it's not what I truly need to say 
or feel or whatever. Word problems. Jesus discusses word problems at this point in the best sermon of all time, in my opinion. The Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying this for quite a while now. This sermon, uh, what it is, I haven't said this in a while, the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of all the things that if you're not doing them, that you're not going to heaven, you're not saved, you're not a real Christian. Praise God that's not what this is because none of us would be Christians or saved or redeemed or however you want to say it. What this is, though, this Sermon on the Mount, it is Jesus' description of what we will look like in a given situation when we are following Him as our Lord, which is a word that just means boss, master. When we're following Him in a given situation, we will look like the Sermon on the Mount. And every time we don't look like it, we kind of have a lordship problem. We're not following as well as we should. And he's given us this to let us know about the kind of righteousness he asks of us as those who would follow him. And it is a higher standard of righteousness than most people tend to think Jesus is concerned with. Most people have the idea that Jesus is the part of God that's kind of permissive and all love and sort of a hippie or something. And God the Father is the one who cares about rules. But they're the same. And today, Jesus is going to proclaim this to his original audience. Basically. He's going to say to this first century Jewish audience, Hey, you know how God hates it when you swear in his name by God that what I'm about to say is true and then you're not truthful? Or you know how God hates it when you take an oath, you enter into a vow, excuse me, a vow. I vow to do this or that, and then you break that vow. You know how God hates it when you have those kind of word problems in these very serious swear and vow situations? His audience would have said, oh yeah, God does not like that. Then Jesus says, well, I'm here to tell you that you're always under oath. Before God, God doesn't care that your words are true. He doesn't care that you carry through on, your, uh, on what you say you'll do. He doesn't care about your integrity, your honesty, and your dependability only when you're under oath or when you've taken some kind of religious vow. He cares about it all the time. It's like you're always under oath. This morning, as we look at how Jesus calls us in this area to a higher standard of righteousness than any of the Jews of his day were chasing. Here's what I want to do. I want to spend a few minutes defining the two major terms that kind of control this passage, vow and oath. I want to discuss how they were used or being used in Jesus' day and what he's kind of upset about. So that I can discuss with you what this passage does not mean. And then at the end, tell you what this passage does mean. For you and me, just in our daily life and walk with him. That's where we're headed. 
So we're going to start by sort of defining um, these two things. There are two words, oaths and vows, and depending upon our translations, I had Doug read the NIV this morning because it really clearly differentiates between the two halves of Jesus' opening statement. If you see at the top of the screen, verse 33, Jesus said, you've always heard it said, and then there's two halves of what he is talking about. You shouldn't swear falsely, you've always heard that. Or your Bible might say, uh, take an oath and break it. And then the second half is, and you have always heard it said how you should fulfill the vows that you make. And he uses those two words throughout this passage. And we have to understand what oaths and vows are to sort, of, to sort of get this passage. What's interesting, unlike any of the other places where we've seen this, you've heard it said, but I tell you over the last few weeks, Jesus doesn't quote from one place in the Old Testament. You can't look up, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your vows to the Lord. That's not a verse in the New Testament. He's taking... Two things that were talked about in the Old Testament in multiple places, oaths and vows, and combining them to talk about word problems. When you give your word and either you don't follow through or you're less than honest. I could have picked out any number of verses in the Old Testament. I just picked out two. One that deals uh, with swearing or oaths and another one with Vows. Leviticus 19, uh, 12, through Moses, God said, you must not swear falsely or break an oath that you took in my name. Because when you do, you profane me. You bring shame on me and I'm the Lord, I'm God. Deuteronomy 23, 21 talks about vows. Through Moses, God said, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't delay in fulfilling that vow. For when you do, you'll be counted guilty as a sinner. So that's kind of maybe two Old Testament verses Jesus could have had in mind when he put these together. Now, what are they? We've got to go through those a little bit, one at a time. First, oaths or swearing is the same thing. When I say swearing today, I'm not talking about using bad words. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that there aren't words he would just soon you not say. There are. We just have to go to a different passage for that teaching. He's talking about taking an oath, being under oath. Uh, here's this definition uh, came from a, the Greek Testament commentary on Matthew that I've been reading as I study this. John Nolland is the guy who divined, defined an oath this way. He said an oath is an assertion of truth that is joined to something or someone of considerable significance. That's the definition. So when someone's sworn in at court, right, they raise their right hand and they swear on something greater or higher than them. God, do you swear? I've had to do this. It's uncomfortable. Uh, you swear. Do you take an oath? To tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, God. Somebody might swear on my mama that what I'm going to tell you is true. I swear on the Bible that this is true. What they're doing, or where this came from, is when I swear on something, if what I say is not true, I don't just bring shame and dishonor on myself. 
I bring shame and dishonor on that thing I swear on. Uh, and, and shame in that culture was a big deal. So that's where those things come from. Um, now, it wasn't that taking an oath was wrong. It wasn't that taking an oath in God's name was wrong. It very clearly wasn't in the Old Testament. The bottom of the screen there, you see Deuteronomy 6.13, where Moses wrote, You must revere the Lord your God, serve Him, and take oaths only in God's name. So it wasn't wrong that people took oaths or were put under oath in God's name. What was wrong is swearing by God that I'm about to tell the truth and then not telling the truth. So it wasn't oaths or swearing that was wrong. It was maybe taking an oath in the wrong thing or uh, and definitely taking an oath and then not being truthful. So that's, that's oath. By the way, the reason God hates this so much, if I swear to tell the whole truth, so help me God, I'm putting that on God, and then I tell a lie, I'm using God to get my lie believed. Like God doesn't like that. He's not into that sort of thing. So that's that prohibition. A vow is a little bit different. Um, one, one preacher said that a vow is worship on credit. If you remember what a vow is, a religious vow, it's worship on credit. And here's what he meant by that. A vow, a religious vow, usually was somebody saying, uh, say, you know, I have animals, I'm a farmer in first century Israel, and the baby calf is born, and I say, you know what, God's been really good to me. I am going to give this baby calf as an offering to the Lord. The problem is, the scriptures told me I could only do that in Jerusalem, and I don't live in Jerusalem. So what I would do is I would vow today that this baby calf is, is an offering to the Lord. But I couldn't actually give the offering until I could get to Jerusalem. So a vow is a promise to do something in the future when it becomes possible for me to do that. Does that make sense? Um, I could vow back then to do an act of service. I could vow to give an offering. Uh, again, not unbiblical, no problem making a vow. The problem was when someone made a vow because it sounded good, especially if there was people around, or, and then later on thought, man, I don't really want to do that. Or to use my baby calf example, Let's say I vowed to give this baby calf as an offering, but then that little critter started to grow, and that looked like a really good bull, and I started to think about how much this thing might be worth, and then I decide later, yeah, maybe I'll give a different one instead of that one. That's, that's breaking a vow. Now, the usage of these oaths and vows is really important to understanding the passage, because Jesus is upset about the way these things are being used. In the passage, you see Jesus says, don't take oaths and vows on things like on heaven, on earth, on your head. Uh, the Old Testament was clear. Vows, oaths are only to be taken in God's name, and people weren't doing that. But what had developed over the centuries 
were ways, and it was like verbal gymnastics, ways for people to, to make these oaths and to swear and to do vows, but do them in ways where it really didn't matter if I decided later not, not to fulfill it. You remember back in the day having your fingers crossed? Remember that? Like you told your mom you were going to do something, but you had your fingers crossed behind. Somehow, when you were a little kid, having your fingers crossed meant you couldn't be held accountable for what you said. That's, basic, that's, a, that's basically what this was. I want to show you, Jesus chews out the scribes and Pharisees toward the end of his life in the book of Matthew about these verbal gymnastics. This is what he's really upset about. Uh, it's in Matthew 23. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, eh, they're really not bound. You really can't hold them accountable for what they swear. But if they swear by the gold of the temple, well, then, then they can be held accountable if they break that. Blind fools. Verse 18. They say, whoever swears by the altar is not bound by that sort of oath. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, well, then they're bound by that, and Jesus blasts them for that. Um, Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you swear. You should only be swearing by in God's name anyway. Um, And the way they're using these oaths wasn't correct to begin with. Does that make sense? Because with that as a backdrop, we're kind of ready to understand the passage. And the first thing I want to tell you is what this is not. Jesus is not giving us an absolute prohibition against oaths and vows. And the reason I bring this up is because there are a lot of churches, even whole denominations, that, that teach this. Uh, that, that I can't make a vow. There are, there are Denominations in our area that won't be sworn in in court because of this. This is not a prohibition against oaths and vows. Um, And I don't want you to approach this passage or walk away from here this morning thinking, okay, there's finally something in the Sermon on the Mount I can actually do. I can actually be good at. All I have to do is not take solemn oaths, swear in God's name, or make religious vows, and I'm good, I'm innocent here. No, 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 no. Jesus' concern is integrity, honesty, and dependability of our word. And us having the courage to have integrity and honesty and dependability even if it costs us, even if it hurts. What Jesus does do away with is this silly system of, you can swear by this, and uh, you know, you probably should keep that, but if you don't, you can't be held accountable. He does away with all that garbage. Um, This is more, Jesus saying, in God's eyes, you're always under oath. In God's eyes, you don't need to take some sort of vow or swear by something to feel like you are accountable to your word, that your word is your bond, that you're bound by your word. 
And because I'm saying this is not an absolute prohibition against these things and it can kind of sound like Jesus is, if you read it, what Jesus says is don't, don't, don't give an oath at all by this and this and this and this. And he, he mentions these lesser things. But I want to show you from the New Testament that this is, these are not pro- prohibited. Because Paul, two times, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote out his own oaths, swears, in what became Scripture. First one, Galatians 1.20. Paul writes to the Galatians, I assure you that before God, I am not lying. If we go back to the definition of what an oath is, that's it. He's asserting the truth based on something higher than him, which is God. To the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul calls God as his witness of a truth claim that he makes. I'm not going to explain you know, what Paul means by to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. I just want you to see it's another place where he swore by God. This is an oath. Hebrews 6.16, the author of Hebrews says that an oath serves as confirmation to end disputes. In other words, there are times when oaths and vows are not only permissible biblically, they're wise. They're a way to put everybody's cards on the table so that everyone knows what publicly all sides in this agreement can be held to. Every time you've signed a contract, you know what you're signing? You're signing an oath and or a vow. Um, If you are married, you exchanged what? Vows. If we go back to the definition, you exchanged promises that you maybe couldn't keep right then, but when it became necessary in the future... You could keep that vow. For example, I vowed that I would be with Rachel in sickness or in health. When we vowed that, Rachel wasn't sick. Right? She's not sick right now. Someday she might be. And publicly, I vowed to still be there and support her and cherish her and honor her. Right? That's a vow. It's okay that we swear to tell the truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth in court. That's really intentionally worded, by the way. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the whole truth, which means not half-truths. I'm not going to mix in a little untruth. That's appropriate. I signed a, a vow and an oath when I became the pastor here. Brian Fellowship uses something called the Pastor's Covenant. And what I vow is that if I ever get in the situation where the elder board here thinks I need to be let go, I will not stay here in town, try to start another church, cause problems for this body. Okay, and that's appropriate. And, you know, if that, God forbid, if that ever happened, they would have something to say, listen, look what he should be held accountable to. All right. All those things are examples of of vows and oaths that are legitimate, they're appropriate, they're biblical ways for people to put all their cards on the table so that everybody knows in the future what they can be held accountable to. So this is not an absolute prohibition against oaths and vows. 
Help me out. There we go. And what this is, as I've mentioned a couple times, this is Jesus saying, just because you haven't taken one of those doesn't mean you are not bound by what you say. Just because you haven't raised your right hand and swore by God that what you're about to say is true doesn't mean God doesn't care whether or not you say what you say is true. Just because you haven't made a solemn vow where you promised and pinky sweared and whatever else to do something doesn't mean God doesn't care whether or not you follow through with what you say you will do. Jesus is taking the religious vow and oath stuff and just applying it to our everyday life. At the very end of this passage where he says, all you need to say is yes or no. Like James said it this way, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And Jesus says anything more than that somehow is from the evil one. Which means before people will believe me or trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, if I have to go, no, like this time I really mean it, right? If somehow I have to give oaths and swears and tell people why they can depend, then something's gone wrong in my, in my character or in my track record. This just makes sense if we're following Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life jesus said and father your word is truth if that's who we are following our words will be true we will be dependable this does not mean that there aren't times where i get in a situation where i have told somebody that I will do this, and later I I realize because of something else I can't do this. So I have to go to them and say, man, I told you I would be here. I told you I would do whatever, and I am going to have to break my word. That totally happens. But Jesus, those should should be the exceptions. You should be handled that way. Um, And now for the rest of our time, what I want to do is go through what I think are just two sort of very general overreaching failures that I see in like just among American Christians and probably among us. Two ways that we have word problems like Jesus talked about. The first one's the most obvious and this is just when we say things that aren't true. Uh, or we don't follow through on what we say. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Christians don't always tell the truth every time. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's true. We are not above verbal gymnastics, like what the, the Pharisees made Jesus so mad Okay, we don't swear by the temple, but not the gold in the temple. We don't do that stuff. But how many times have you said something to someone, leading them to believe this? Leaving yourself room, though, later to claim that's not really what you were saying. 
And, and so you can pretend, oh, wow, no, that's not what I meant at all. Even though that is what you wanted them to think you meant. How many times is it just easier to tell somebody something that's not the truth? I know I'm guilty of this. Why do we do this? Where do these word problems come from in our hearts? First, I think it's really easy to have what I'm going to call an idol of acceptance in our hearts. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes I, I just want, I want people to accept me. I want people to like me. I don't want conflict with a person I'm, I, I'm in front of or who's in front of me. And that becomes an idol that has to sort of be obeyed. Like a little God. To where if, if you are speaking with me and I have to choose between upsetting you you know, making you angry, making you feel bad, or telling you something that's just not true, I might go with the latter instead of the former. Does that make sense? And the reason I call it an idol, and the reason we have to understand that's idolatry. What we're doing is we're either treating that person like they are the the entity in my life that needs to be pleased at that time rather than God, or just my own popularity is the idol that I have to sacrifice things to, sacrifice the truth, sacrifice my integrity. It's idolatry, and we need to recognize it as that. Following Jesus is costly sometimes, and this is one area when that can be true. But when I'm doing this, I, it's like I'm removing the top and the bottom step to try to keep somebody from tripping. It's a really bad solution in the long run. Even from a, just a humanistic, um, practical, logical standpoint. Because in the long run, me just being honest and forthright will go a lot further toward people accepting me <laughs> than them not being able to depend on what I say or not be able to believe if they're hearing the real truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth from me. I mean, eventually that just gets tough. And from an eternal perspective, my acceptance should just is found in the Lord. Now, this is this is common. There's absolutely no way I'm not speaking to dozens of people. So I want to give you a tool. You can use this. Next time you're facing a situation where, oh man, I can't let this person down. Oh man, I can't. This person's not going to like me. Oh, Here's just an idea. There's many versions of this. You just say, you come out with it. And you say, I am really struggling with the idea of disappointing you. I'm really having a hard time with the idea that I could let you down. Or, man, my heart says, that, like, if I tell you what I need to tell you, like, you won't like it, and that's really hard for me. But here's what I feel like I have to tell you, and I hope you can understand. For the most part, people can respect that. Another reason 
why, in general, we struggle with truthfulness in our society, in our culture. Besides this idol of acceptance that we put up in our hearts, or that gets put in our hearts, um, it's basically what we can get away with has become a lot more important than what's right. True? In general? What I can get away with is sometimes more important than what is right. And, I mean, it's a kind of a sermon about honesty, so I'll be forthright with you. I don't want to pretend. There are times when lying can be advantageous to a temporary situation. That's just true. Lying might help me get something I want. Lying might help me avoid, circ- avoid uh, consequences that I don't want. It can work. Don't think it can't. That'd be dishonest. A commitment to the truth, to integrity, to honesty, to dependability, comes with the understanding that will come at cost. It takes a real commitment to the truth to decide ahead of time, I'm going to be willing to lose, to suffer some loss in order to be forthright and truthful. And that is tough. It's tough because it's really easy to get trained that less than truthfulness is beneficial. Would you agree with that? And that is why. Parents, I want to talk to you for a minute. Let me ask you this. Do you demand honesty and truthfulness from your kids? And don't answer that too quickly. Do you demand the truth and honesty from your kids in a way that honors the truth, exposes untruth, and does not demonize a kid when he or she gets it wrong? Or, here's why I said don't answer this too quickly. Or do your kids have a way of controlling you emotionally even when they're not telling the truth? Can your kids control you emotionally even when they're not telling the truth? Here's how that might go down. They raise the emotional stakes in a conversation, in a conflict, to the point where you feel like you have to back down even even though something inside is telling you I'm not getting the truth here. Here's how this works. American kids learn really quickly what innocent until proven guilty means. And, and American kids learn really quickly that if they can make you feel like you are not being fair and just and that you are, or that you are hurting them, that they can control you and control your responses. And so maybe you're getting something you don't think it's quite the truth and you say something to your kids and they go, what? You don't believe me? You don't trust me? And then then you're like, oh man, I don't have proof. Like it's not like I've got video of this situation. And so you think, I don't want them to think I don't trust them. And I I can't prove this, 
So I can't call him guilty unless I can prove it, right? That's America. All right, parents, here's what you can do. You remember a few things. First, please remember this. Your kids will lie. You know how I know? Because I did, and so do you. So did you. And they, they don't have to pick it up from their friends, or from school, or from movies, or the intranet. They're born sinners. And sometimes lying works, and they learn that really quickly. So they'll lie. Second, I want you to remember this. Your home is not the American legal system. They are not innocent until proven guilty. Even if they were, God says they were born guilty. So there you go. Sorry, I'm throwing stuff. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, They don't have a right to a lawyer either, so you don't have to get them one of those. Your relationship to your children is not based on trust. That sounds unbiblical, but hear me out. Your relationship to your children is not based on and founded upon you believing those little liars. Your relationship to your children is based on your God-appointed position. And your God-given uh, job and duty to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and to shape them in their character. And if you go with, I, well, I can't prove them and I don't want them to think I don't trust them, you will train them that lying is advantageous. You will train them that their feelings are more important than the truth. So you have pastoral uh, permission. When that emotion starts to ratchet up, what? You don't believe me and I can't believe... You can go call my teacher right now. You can call Joey's dad. You call him right now. Right? Understand what that is. We're raising the stakes here. Because now if you're proven wrong, you're the worst mom ever. Right? Here's what you can do. All right. You say things like, you know, your emotions don't control me. You can say things like, just because you're talking to me that way, I'm going to start removing what you're after. You can say things like, son, sweetheart, whatever you call your kid. This is hard for me to say, but I don't think daddy's getting the truth. What? And I know, I know, I know. I might even be wrong. But I take my job in raising you seriously and I want you to value the truth and I demand the truth. And I can say no to stuff just because I'm dad, just because I'm mom. I don't need proof. And so just because there's something telling me this isn't true, I'm going to start to remove the benefit you are after right there. That's okay. And in those instances, by the way, if you do that prayerfully, you'll be right more times than you're wrong. And in those times when you're wrong, you've got another fantastic opportunity 
Because you know what else your kids need to see modeled? You admitting when you are wrong and you asking for forgiveness. When's the last time they saw you do that? That's a great opportunity to set the same kid down and say, sweetheart, son, man, dad was wrong. I didn't believe you or not. Now I know you were telling me the truth. Will you, can, you forgive, can you forgive me for that? Um, that's just a better sort of model to raise them in the fear of the Lord. Can you call your child on lies? Can you demand the truth? Or when they continue to plead with lies, does that eventually just become beneficial? I want you to think about what you're training. You're training that lies are beneficial and that their temporary happiness is more important than personal integrity. And I can't think of many more dangerous things for a child to leave a home with than thinking, what makes me happy is the most important thing. Well, that went longer than I thought. I've used almost all my time here, but I want to get to the other side of this, of word problems. Um, I got to mention this other way where I think we remove the top step and the bottom step from letting our yes be yes and our no be no and honoring our commitments and being truthful. And that is this. I don't think we say this out loud, but I think this is what we wind up living, and that's this. I know God doesn't want me to break my word. I know God wants me to honor my commitments. So here's what I'm going to do. If I don't commit to anything, I'll never break my word. Or... I never investigate what God wants my yes to be toward. I, I don't prayerfully consider what does he want me committed to. Just because we haven't made religious vows, when you signed up, up to follow Jesus as Savior, there's some vows and some oaths built into that. Uh, the prophet Micah said, God has told you, O oh man, what what God desires from you. He wants you to promote justice, to be faithful, to live obediently before your God. Jesus said, make disciples. Be a disciple and be involved in making disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and love others as yourself. There are things in there to be committed to. When we never seek what we're supposed to be committed to, and then honor the other commitments when we just commit to whatever we feel like committing to, it's like we've removed the top and the bottom step of the real problem. I can't stumble on my commitments. I only commit to what will make me happy. I'm just committed to building my kingdom, my wealth, my excitement, my fun. I try to be good while I'm doing it, and I can call myself a man or a woman or of integrity because you can't tell me one lie I've said in the last month. I think the center, the balance of this passage is found in this. Find where God wants my yeses to be. And that's tough. 
That is tougher than it sounds. Easy preaching, hard living. Explore where God wants my yeses to be. Make proper vows in those areas that I can be held accountable to. And then live out the vows I should have made all along. To be dependable, to be truthful, honor and value the truth and integrity. Call myself on it when I fail it and demand it at home. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. Ladies, when you got married, you took someone else's name. When you decided to follow Jesus, became a Christian, you took his name in the same way. We bear his name. And people learn about Jesus from us. So we need to be committed to truthfulness. Pray with me while the guys come forward. We will uh, share communion together. Father, um, your word is truth. Lord Jesus, you are the, the truth. And following you means being true to our word. Committed where we should be committed and dependable. God, I uh, thank you so much that the truth of the gospel is that where we have failed in this area or any other area, that doesn't seal our fate eternally because our fate is is sealed by the blood of Christ shed on a cross. So even though we've spent time thinking about where we fail with our word problems, Lord, right now, we want to think of where you succeeded in forgiving us and saving us and redeeming us. As you told us, as often as we do this, we're to remember you. We want to remember you this morning. First, as the bread comes around, we remember that you were willing to give up your body because we failed. God, we remember you while this comes around. Commune with us in Jesus' name.